busted off the old whistle this fall to coach my son's flag football team. Sarah will tell you I'm way too invested in it. That's another story for another day. Uh, but there are rules that govern flag football. I think these rules are good. I think we're all better off for the fact that these rules exist. One week, though, recently, our opponent was going a little beyond the physicality allowed by the rules. They got a little too tackly. And as you might expect, with six to eight-year-olds, our team responds by tackling one of their ball carriers next possession, uh, which makes the parents gasp and say, whoa, 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 whoa. So you've got a choice at that moment as a coach. Do you <clears throat> run over and start yelling at the other team, saying, hey, uh, they started it. Do you run out in the middle of the field and yell at both teams, hey, listen up, everybody. I chose neither of those paths. Instead, I called in my team and talked to them about the standard that we are going to hold each other to on our team, no matter what they do over there. Today's scripture passage is a little like if the Apostle Paul is pulling in his team and saying, hey, how they live is how they live. That's not our primary concern. Here, within the family of faith, there's a different standard that we are going to hold each other to. So would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? 1 Corinthians 5. We're working our way through this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. We're doing so keeping an eye on what this letter tells us today about how to cultivate healthy relationships. And in our first six weeks, we've gotten wisdom about navigating several different sorts of relationships that you and I all face. We saw how do we relate across camps or factions or tribes within the church? How do we relate to our church leadership? How do we relate to those who have directly mentored us? And then how do we relate to those whom we mentor or disciple? Today's passage is relationship-oriented again, and specifically the question raised is how do we relate to fellow Christians who aren't living in line with the way of Jesus? Paul's been priming pump for this one. You remember how last week left off, end of chapter 4, end of chapter four Paul was reminding the members of this church in Corinth of the fatherly role that he had played for them ever since he first shared the good news of Jesus with them. And while a good father prefers to be tender, he's prepared to be firm. And so he has just asked them at the end of chapter 4, should I come to you with a rod or in love and with a spirit of gentleness? Next time I visit, can I come to you with gentleness or do I need to come with a big old stick, basically? And today we learn of two of the specific situations that prompted Paul to write this way. In both cases, the problem isn't out there, outside the church. The problem he's thinking of is one of internal failure to judge within the church. In other words, the Corinthians have not been holding one another to the appropriate standard within the family of faith. And so we'll look at each of these two problems in turn with an eye on how that standard is supposed to be different within the family of faith. First, there's a problem of tolerating sexual immorality. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. We recirculated a sermon uh, on Thursday from three years ago in which we laid out our vision for church discipline, it's called, here at North Sub. Hope you had a chance to listen. But part of that sermon dealt with this passage. I don't want to cover too much of the same ground. Uh, but let's read chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Paul says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation, the one who did this? 
Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter, so there was a letter before this one, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So, we've got this guy in the church who's in sin. Serious sin and apparently unwilling to turn away from it. But here's the relevance for us. As we aim to cultivate healthy relationships as possible, we too will find ourselves one day in community with somebody who is in egregious sin that they are unwilling to turn from. With that in mind, I think we can fruitfully ask six questions of these verses that we just read. First is how to feel in this situation. As those in the church, as we're witnessing this, look at verse 2. Shouldn't you be filled with grief, Paul says? Or like another translation says, shouldn't you have gone into mourning? Now, if I don't feel sad about something I should feel sad about, Am I morally culpable for that? Like, it doesn't always seem like I can help the way I feel. I just feel how I feel. At very least, we can say from this text that there sometimes is a should to our emotions. That's why sometimes we sing that song that has the line, Break my heart for what breaks yours. Have you ever had one of those sobering moments in which you thought to yourself, Well, God says that this sin grieves him, so why do I feel like I'm rooting for it? Like, I want to celebrate it. Why don't I feel grieved by it? I know I've been there. My feelings towards sin aren't always very well calibrated to line up with God's feelings towards sin. And those moments of realization are opportunities, I think, for us to ask God, God, attune my heart so that I increasingly love what you love and hate what you hate. Help me to feel about things the way that you feel about them, the way I should feel about them. And in this case, we see a brother or sister stuck in sin. We want to become the sort of people who grieve that born over it and with a sorrow that produces action so that's next what to do so how to feel now what to do the appropriate action that the corinthians have failed to take is laid out six times in this passage using different language in each case to highlight different angles on what should be done with this man who's in sin verse two remove him from the congregation verse five hand him over to satan for the destruction of the flesh Verse 7, clean out the old leaven. Verse 11, don't associate with him, don't even eat with him. Verse 12, judge him. And verse 13, remove him from among you. All of these are different ways of saying the same thing. Namely, 
that this guy shouldn't be treated as a believing member of your church anymore, Corinthians. He should be removed from the member roles, to use our terminology. Now, does this mean that the Corinthians were supposed to ignore him when he walked by on the sidewalk? I don't think so. The hope in all of this is that he'll be saved, verse 5, as a result of these actions. And he needs to keep hearing the good news of Jesus in order to be saved. So just like the church is supposed to treat him like an unbeliever, it doesn't mean they're shunning him. That's not how we treat our unbelieving neighbors. So are we saying this man would still be allowed to attend church? I think almost certainly yes. Right? Paul is going to talk later in this letter about how significant it can be for unbelievers to attend church. So we hope that the person in this situation keeps coming to church, keeps hearing the gospel. But when it comes time for the family meal, what we would call communion, right? And all the Passover communion language in this passage, I think, is good evidence that the eating here in verse 11 is probably referring specifically to communion. No, he can't share that meal with us right now, not till he turns from his sin. It's that kind of association that's off limits, the kind of association that would communicate to him, hey, we see you as a brother in the Lord. Can't do that. None of that kind of association. And maybe you and I read this and say, that seems harsh. After all, remember communion in Corinth, there wasn't a wafer and a splash of juice. We're going to see in chapter 11 that communion was a full meal for them, that they sat down at a table and ate. It was dinner. It would have taken time. People are getting full off of it. So even if this guy was free to attend worship service, it would have felt painful for him to be cut off from that meal. Make no doubt about that. But Paul calls that pain, that pain that he would have inevitably experienced, a handing over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Yikes, is this a weird ritual that Paul's advocating? I don't think so. We have to keep in mind how Paul sees the world, right? In Paul's view, in the Bible's view, Satan is the ruler of this world in this present age. And he is out to get you and me to sin and then to jump all over us with accusation and condemnation when we do sin. That's what he's doing. But in the midst of this world ruled by Satan, God's kingdom has broken in in Christ such that there are these outposts that we call local churches dotted throughout this world in which Satan no longer reigns in darkness, but instead Christ reigns in marvelous light. Our membership then in a local church like this one, our regular partaking in communion, those are acts that protect us in some sense from Satan's work. We're shielded, in other words, from the worst of his barbs when we're transferred from the domain under his rule out there to the domain under Christ's rule in here. So when removed from that intimate fellowship of kingdom people, when separated from the shelter provided by the table, now that protection's gone, and Satan's able to have a field day. And here's what Satan's whisper might sound like to somebody who's out there without the protection of the church. Hey, don't let anybody tell you what you can or can't do with your body. That's your private choice, not anybody else's business. So you give in and sleep with somebody you ought not sleep with. Then what does Satan swoop back in to say to your heart? You piece of trash. How pathetic are you for sleeping with your mother-in-law? You're the laughing stock of town. God doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. See? Communion protects us from both ends of that. Because when I'm at the communion table, I'm confronted with my sin on one hand. 
right? Specifically, I see at the table, hey, Satan the deceiver is wrong. He's wrong when he says, I'm fine just as I am. I'm not all good. Look at the broken bread and poured out cup. My sin was so serious, Jesus had to spill his blood for me. But on the flip side, Satan the accuser is also wrong. When he tells me God doesn't want me because the communion table says, oh yes, God does want you. He wanted you so much that he was willing to go to the greatest lengths to purchase you back. See how when I'm removed from communion, I lose access to a key weapon that could combat both of those lies? And in that sense, I've been effectively handed over to Satan when I'm removed from the table. It's not hard to find the stories, even with a quick internet search, and I'd encourage you to do it. Countless churchgoers over the generations have been handed over to Satan by their local congregations like this. Only to find, once removed from the protection of the table, oh wait, this is not what I want at all. My heart aches for what I had when I was included in the church because now I see it's not safe out here for me on my own. I need the gospel of Jesus that pronounces both that I'm way more sinful than Satan the deceiver told me I was, yet that I'm way more loved than Satan the accuser told me I was. And while that's not automatically everyone's response who experiences this sort of church discipline, God has used it to turn many from their sin and back to Jesus. And so that's what should be done. Instead of looking the other way like the Corinthians did. They're proud of themselves for being so progressive, right? They're arrogant about it. Open-minded, tolerant. We don't judge that guy. That's his life, not our business. This is a church of grace, you can imagine them saying. No, you got to remove that dude, Paul says. But, <clears throat> but who fits this category Right, like, if I were to see Ken driving 72 and a 65 on the highway later today, do we need to convene a special meeting of the elders to remove Ken's membership? Right. What kind of person? <laughs> what kind of person should be subjected to discipline in this way? So, what kind of person? Uh, verses 9 to 13 address that. Not an unbeliever. We're not talking about unbelievers, just to be totally clear, okay? I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I didn't mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the idolaters, swindlers. Otherwise, you have to leave the world. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and sexually immoral or greedy. An idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such a person, right? So this is somebody who's claiming to be a brother or sister. If we're going to distance ourselves from everybody who's living contrary to God's design, Paul says we have to exit planet Earth. No, those we expect, we, we expect those not on Team Jesus not to live by the way of Team Jesus, right? Why would they? But if somebody's claiming the name of Christ while not living in accordance with that name, that's the person that we're talking about, right? And God, he's the judge of all of us, of course. But Paul's argument seems to be that those outside the church are directly in God's hands for judgment, not our job. Those within the church, on the other hand, God is determined to judge them through us, their fellow church members, right? Don't you judge those inside? The implied answer is yes, we must. Now, is there ever a place to call out the immorality of someone who's not a believer in Christ? Surely there is. John the Baptist calls out King Herod. Jesus calls out the Pharisees. Especially when people in public positions commit public sin, there's a time and place for the church to make known that, hey, we all have to answer to God one day, whether Christian or not.
But we've purposed here at North Sub not to be the church that's constantly issuing statements condemning our local libraries for their book selection or our local schools for their agendas. What we don't want is to give the appearance that we're sitting up here on this high horse, this sinless perch, throwing stones at all the sinners out there. Instead, we hope that anybody who visits here or listens in on any of what we do would be able to draw the conclusion, hey, that church, Norsub, they take especially seriously their responsibility to warn each other against sin in their own community, right? Like this is the place where it's appropriate, even necessary for us to pass judgment. That's one sort of judgment, right? Not judgmentalism, but judgment. Um, but we haven't still answered the question about Ken and Ken speeding. <laughs> what kind of sin is it that warrants this response? I don't think they speed, by the way. I have no reason to think that. <laughs> Listen, we all have indwelling sin, right? If any of us claims we don't, First John says we're lying. Also, any sin, no matter how small is enough to make us guilty in God's sight, deserving of his wrath. Yet, there's another sense in which not all sin is equal, nor is it to be treated equally, right? Paul doesn't say all this that we've been reading today about removal from the congregation in response to somebody who walked by a piece of trash in the street and didn't pick it up. So where's the line where sin in the church has elevated to the level of something needs to be dealt with in such a decisive way? It's a tough question, right? Lots of suggestions have been proposed. I'm not convinced it's an exact science, but more something that wise congregations and their leaders seek the spirits leading on case by case. That said, some factors that seem to factor in to and matter in this conversation. First, how egregious is the sin, right? Like, how bad was it? We got this list here. These sins listed seem to be in line with those treated most seriously throughout Scripture. Not that this is an exhaustive list, but sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, swindler. Second factor is how public is the sin? Uh, like, who knows about it? That maybe finds support in the logic of verse 6 that, hey, Paul's saying that left unchecked, this could mess up the whole batch of dough, so to speak. There's a public dimension to it. And third, how settled is the sin? How sorry is the person? How repentant is the person? Theoretically, if this guy was sorry for sleeping with his mother-in-law and was determined to stop, there would be no need for any of this action to take place. So I'm not sure there's a formula, but all three of these have to factor in when we're determining what sins elevate to the level of excommunication from the congregation. That said, all sin, egregious or not, public or not, settled or not, is worthy of challenging each other on privately. That ought to be the most common, most formative form of church discipline happening in our midst on a regular basis, one of us to another. Just saying, hey, I feel like I got a name that I see this in you and it seems a bit off. Right? But when determining whether to escalate the conversation beyond that, it seems wise to factor in how egregious, how public, how settled it is. Now, some criticisms are levied at Christians at this point. And maybe these are criticisms you have. I can think of at least two. Uh, first is, see, Christians are obsessed with sexual sin while looking the other way when it comes to other sin. Like, look right here. Sexual sin is only one item in this list. How come I've never been in a church that withheld communion from a member because of greed? I think there's something fair in that criticism that we need to take seriously. That said, if the problem is 
that we're not taking other sins as seriously as the Bible says we should, I'm not sure the remedy can be that we should also stop taking sexual sin as seriously as the Bible says we should. In many cases, both biblically and in our own day, sexual sin is what gets dealt with because it's pretty black and white. You're living with your girlfriend and don't have any intention of stopping, right? You had an affair and you're not cutting it off, right? Unlike some instances of greed, these sorts of sexual sin don't require us to judge hidden motives, right? It's just cut and dry. So you, you put the church in a situation then where they can either look the other way and participate in your demise or they can lovingly challenge you on it, right? Another criticism, though, might be about this process as a whole, like, hey, I don't know that I feel safe in a place where fellow Christians are going to come around turning over every stone to find secret sin in my life. Scary thought, right? And I've had friends who attended churches that seem to be on witch hunts. That's not what Scripture advocates, right? In any of the cases in which Paul prescribes discipline in the New Testament, it's not, hey, go searching to see if she's into this or that, or she's up to this or that, right? It's, hey, this has become known and obvious in the community, and not to deal with it at this point is a dereliction of duty. So here at Norsev, while we are prepared to love each other well by challenging each other on sin, by looping others in in love if needed to plead with the person who's stuck, even by going so far as to remove from membership and communion if it's egregious, public, and settled, we have done that. We don't have some kind of weird curiosity about all your secret sins. There's enough sin to deal with already. Right? Just taking into account the ones in our own lives that we become aware of each week. And the ones that become known in our congregation without us going and looking for them. I would want to say it this way. Okay? So it's appropriate for North Sub to be an uncomfortable place for a professing Christian who's stubbornly clinging to their sin. That's okay. I'm okay with that being uncomfortable. However, North, North Sub should be the safest place in Deerfield for a sinner with a repentant heart who feels some level of sorrow about their sin. And I've found this congregation to be just that. I've blown it plenty of times in my seven years here. But I've only ever found that when I'm like, hey guys, I need to own this, I blew it. This church family has ministered the extravagant grace of Christ to me and welcomed me back into the fold with open arms. I think that's a picture of what this should look like. Now, why do this? We haven't done the why yet. Why remove from the congregation someone in egregious public settled sin? I see four reasons given here. One, to save the individual. You see it there, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's one reason given. Implied here is that apart from this exclusion from the family of faith, this person might never wake up to the seriousness of his behavior and he might die in his state of rebellion. That's why a significant reason for disciplining someone in this way is for their sake. It's one last-ditch effort to bring them back, to move them to repentance so that they can be restored again. Another reason, though, is to protect the church, not just the individual, but the church. The reasoning here in verses 6 and 7 is that a little poison can do a lot of damage. Right? Put some leaven into a batch of dough, knead it around, and every bit of that dough will be leaven. Right? Same in the church. Let something like this go. And all sorts of others may follow suit. That's why we elders here remind each other all the time, hey, whatever we permit as elders, we promote. So as nice as we th may think we are being by letting someone continue unchecked in their sin, that's actually quite unloving to the rest of the congregation who are being put in harm's way. Third reason to do this, to be clear to the watching world. 
there's a perception component involved here. We'll see that clearly in the early verses of chapter 6, but I think it's hinted at even here in chapter 5, verse 1, when Paul says, hey, even the Gentiles don't tolerate what you guys are doing. Right? In other words, have you thought about the fact that you guys look crazy even to your pagan neighbors, who, by the way, are known around the world for their sexual licentiousness? When the world looks at the church today and sees Christians excusing sin of other Christians, just looking the other way, sweeping it under the rug, they say, that's all I needed to know about Christianity. No, thank you. The fourth reason to do this, because Christ the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is gold here, verse 7, right? When Paul goes to the Old Testament to make his case on this, that they should practice church discipline, we might expect him to say, hey, remove this person from among you because here in Leviticus it says, thou shalt not sleep with your mother-in-law. But instead, what Old Testament scripture does he appeal to? He appeals to the Passover story. In other words, he wants us to be motivated to act not just by the pure do's and don'ts of law, but by the gospel, the good news of God saving us. If you have Jewish friends, you know a little about the Passover. That's what Paul's bringing up when he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What's he mean? Here's what I think he's after. God saved his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt on that first Passover. On that night, he gave them a meal to eat that he instructed them to keep eating every year forever to remember this. But in the design of that meal, he built in a picture of how he was saving them to be a distinct people group, different from and undefiled by the world around them, namely this unleavened bread. Don't let any leaven in that bread. Even a little leaven will work its way through the whole dough. This bread, the Passover bread, is going to be free from any of that. And now Paul picks that up and says, Guys, don't you see why God instructed that at the first Passover? He was preparing to send Jesus, the true Passover lamb, to be slaughtered for you with his blood being the reason that you're saved. But he didn't save you just to be like the rest of the nations around you. He saved you to be distinct, to be undefiled, to be free from impurity like the unleavened bread. So in light of that incredible, miraculous, saving work of God in Christ, what are you doing being so casual about allowing leaven into that loaf? Friends, may North Suburban Church never fall asleep at the wheel when it comes to our responsibilities to one another and thereby allow sin to run rampant in our midst. Maybe the best way not to let things get out of hand is to start small in our growth groups and in our life groups. Like, hey brother, do I have permission to tell you something that I see in you? Hey, sister, is it, is it okay if I raise a concern out of love for you? Those kinds of conversations. And as the circle of pe expands of people who have seen this behavior, maybe then more voices maybe join the conversation in love. And if nothing changes, eventually we as a church in many cases should and would say, hey, if you don't turn from this, you're going to have your membership here suspended and it will be unwelcome to receive communion. But then, of course, we keep loving that person. Keep sharing the gospel with them. Keep giving them rides so they can come and sit under the word, even while they're kept from communion and participation in church life as a member until they show evidence of repentance. The hope in all that is that the church won't be poisoned. Our communities won't be scandalized out here. And the brothers and sisters we love will come to their senses. 
That was the first issue. The second one we'll just treat much more briefly, taking each other to court. So long time talking about tolerating sexual immorality, now taking each other to court. Let's read uh, these verses, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute against one another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. We see the connection between this passage and the previous one that we just read. Namely, they both involve failure to judge. Paul doesn't spout off on the man caught with sin with his mother-in-law. He spouts off on the church for failing to judge that man. And here again in these verses, it's similar. Hey, as you pawn off your proper role as judges, and you pawn it off to unbelieving courts, why are you all failing to judge? And this can be directly relevant for us, of course. There's a kind of judging that's wrong, but there's a kind of judging that's necessary within the church. For example... Uh, and, and this taking to court specifically, right? A fellow church member comes over to your house for life group, backs over your mailbox on the way out, apologizes and moves on without any offer or intention to compensate you financially. What do we do? This text suggests that an appropriate action would be to invite a fellow believer in to arbitrate. Now, why handle it in-house like that, within the church instead of in court? Three reasons. One, Believers are qualified to arbitrate. How can someone consistently implement justice who hasn't been justified? But believers have been justified and so have unique access to God's justice. And besides, we're going to be entrusted with judgment for eternity, Paul says, even over angels. Second, related, these cases are relatively trivial. They feel like a big deal to us, of course, when we feel like we've been wronged. But in the scheme of things... We're going to be judging over the next five billion years things much more important than this, right? So relatively trivial. And third, unbelievers are watching. So he mentions in verse 6, we've all been in the uncomfortable situation of witnessing a married couple argue publicly. It feels so cringy, like, will you please both stop? Yet we Christians make the world feel that way about us sometimes. When we drag each other into court to air all our dirty laundry against one another. Paul's like, why would you ever want unbelievers to see this? Third, how should we feel about it? This is an attitude question more than an action question. I'm thinking about the crazy phrasing here. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? That's an attitude component, right? But who wants to be wronged or cheated? I would rather that rather than what? It seems like the best outcome in Paul's mind is for there to be some sort of arbitration conducted privately within the church in which a just settlement is reached and what's fair is done, right? But I think Paul's saying here in verse 7, short of that ideal outcome, if your choices are A, be wronged and cheated, 
Or B, divide the church so that everybody in town cringes at us? Why would you not rather be wronged? Even if it means I get shorted on what's rightfully mine, that's preferable to the world looking at the church and saying those people are a train wreck. Now, before we look at our big idea and close, it's important to briefly acknowledge that both of these teachings have been misused. Both the teachings we saw today. Some of you have been part of overly policing churches that turn over every stone to try to find every secret sin and who are quick to kick people out for unsubstantiated accusations. Right? Some of you have heard of or read about churches that respond to an abuser in their midst by saying, hey, don't tell the police. The Bible says to handle it in-house. Those are misuses of these texts, not what's being called for. Right? But potential misuse shouldn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. It means that we name the potential for misapplication and, aware of those dangers, we work to apply these texts appropriately as intended. So our big idea today is this. We Christians are responsible to enforce what's right within our local churches. We Christians are responsible to enforce what's right within our local churches. That's a judging component, right? This is our team. It's a team that's actively recruiting we're eagerly welcoming people to join the team. It's an open invite, but it's a team nonetheless. And the ref, so to speak, is going to deal with the other team's behavior, right? We don't like to think of God that way, and he's a lot more than a referee, but he plays that role of judging. Right? Our job is to enforce the standards God has handed down to us in-house. And we do so for the good of the individuals involved, for the health of the team dynamic, and so as not to make the team look unattractive to those out there that we've invited to join. In other words, it wouldn't and shouldn't ever be a source of pride for us to say, yeah, we've got members here at North Sub defiantly living proudly in all sorts of sin, and we accept those people without judgment. No, to truly love each other is to hold ourselves within this family to a standard. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We no longer have to hide our sin, no longer have to explain it away, no longer have to minimize it. It has been dealt with decisively, and there's freedom in that. We can bring it out into the open without fear of condemnation, because Jesus knew about that sin, yet he looked right at us, and he laid himself on that altar to be slain in our place so that our sin could be washed away. we got nothing to hide. But when he purchased us at that unthinkable cost, he was purchasing a set-apart people, unleavened, who hold each other to a different standard from the world around us. It's imperative that we clean out the leaven in our midst. It'd be unloving not to. Let's pray. Lord, we want to do that, as scary as it seems, and as much danger as there is for misapplication. Uh, we don't want to shrink from that. Not because we're a sort of people who delight in uncovering sin or delight in bringing down some sort of hammer, but because we're a blood-bought people who have nothing to be afraid of in bringing our sin to the light. Because we care deeply about one another, deeply enough about one another to warn each other against the danger that's coming down the road if we continue in our sinful patterns. And so, Lord, help us to be a place that's just a healthy culture of that in all the right ways encouraging and exhorting one another daily as long as it's called today so that we don't 
get trapped in the deceitfulness of sin. Help us to be a people who warn each other in love and who respond to correction and get back on the right path so that we won't be trapped and won't let our enemy get a foothold in our lives. Help that to be the culture of this church in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, in response to this sermon text, we're going to sing a song to close. But uh, elders and women's leadership team members, can I get a few of you to please come forward now? And the reason they're coming forward is because here's what I would hate to happen this morning. I would hate for this scenario to play out. Someone here is stuck in sin. Your sin's got a hold on you, but you've seen in this passage the urgency of getting unstuck. You don't want to get to the point that this guy was at where you're unwilling to change. I would hate for that person to be here this morning and not have an opportunity to take care of some needed business with the Lord before you leave. So we've got some leaders in the church up here on each side. They're here to pray with you and to offer.